0: Very well. Okay. Good evening, everyone. Welcome back. We missed last week. Now we're getting back on track. So, I'll give you a little recap of events of last week's partial last week's Tower portion, in order to give us perspective on this week's. Before I start, I wanted to actually make sure. i invited you? Um. Wanted to actually make sure. I have been using the phrase archetypes quite a bit in these classes. Is everyone familiar with what that means? Could be you bumped into it in your life, but you're not really sure. I want to make sure that we're all on the same. Is thing. it Campbell stuff or? Uh, is it, Campbell? No, N- So the, a lot of people have talked about it, and the 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 most famous name attached, you know, in modern times to archetypes is Jung. But everyone who deals with the study of religion, religious texts is dealing with archetypes. The Idea of archetypes is right that there are certain kind of central concepts which carry a certain symbolism, and if we pay attention to that symbolism, right. In other words, we should whenever we encounter those concepts in literature, especially religious literature, right. We're looking for those particular symbols. What, the, what you know, what a father or a king or a queen or uh, you know or the son has meant to humanity historically. And so when I approach these discussions, I try to look at it it, through the lens of kind of the biblical archetypes, the figures in the Torah who represent particular ideals or particular experiences or particular symbolism. And I try to bring out, right, what exactly it is that they represent. That's not really, right, so we're talking a lot about stories and events, but we're primarily trying to extract those a deeper level of meaning from those events, what we're meant to learn. My father-in-law, Rabbi Feldman, likes to always say that, you know, when we hear about a conversation in the Torah, it's not just... Those weren't the only conversations they had. They talked about the weather, too, right? In other words, it's, we only hear about significant conversations. And we that's why we're bothering to study them. This is not just chit-chat. This is meaningful. So, and... Uh, I hope that we've been demonstrating that over the past few weeks, and I'd like to continue to demonstrate it. Okay. We left off talking about Yaakov. Yaakov is the son of Yitzhak and Rivka. He had literally an evil twin, right, named Esav, who uh, we left off when Esav was coming after him to kill him. Coming after him to kill him. He hates him. Right, and we said that Yaakov represents our... As it were, our nobler side, and sub is very much our animal side, our, our impulsive, uh, you know, living in the moment, not in a positive way, but in a negative way, you know, uh, very carpe diem, very, um, very, instant gratification, right? Kind of the, the lower, the lower side of us. Okay, so. What we missed last week is that basically, um, really part of just also what we didn't cover in the previous parsha, is that Yaakov escapes, he runs away to his distant cousins in the land of Haran. He, if that's the north of Israel, modern day Syria, um, he marries a distant cousin of his. He marries, in fact, two distant cousins of his who um, are sisters. And he has 12 children. These are they. This is going to be important. What happens is, he marries first Leah, sister number one, and then Rachel, sister number two. Right? He also marries, when at first neither of them are capable of having children, they encourage him to take as concubines their maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah. He proceeds to then have, right, or, they it's, kind of jumped a step over there. Leah has some children. See, she's not going to have any more. Rachel does, hasn't had any children yet. Now, Leah produces four children, Reuben, Shimon, Levi, and Yehuda. The numbers, written on the side, represent the total birth order, meaning as relates to Yaakov, to the husband, right? She has one, two, three, four, Reuben, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, right? She sees she's not having any more children at that point. She and gives, what about the Zahar? Hmm?
1: What about, about Zahar?
0: We're going to get to that. I'm just, I'm going in order, in total birth order, in chronological order, right? Dan Naftali, Qadda Asher, right? Then we circle back around to Yusachar Zebulun, right? Dina, daughter, and then finally Rachel has children, Yosef and Benjamin. We're going to talk about the children. And they have only one daughter?
1: Or so because we know about Dina as she's a. The-
0: so, right, there is, the, the, the sages say that really each, each of the children was born with a twin daughter, there are different traditions as to as to uh, just how many girls there were, but the only daughter whose existence we know about is Dina, right? Okay, a lot happens in between um, that we're not going to delve into just because we're going to run out of time. One very important event is that Dina is kidnapped by a local prince. She is rather seduced by a local prince, um, prince of Shechem, whose name conveniently is Shechem. Um,
1: and Dina, the it seems some, the two uh, sister and brother.
0: They're definitely sister and brother. Yes, absolutely.
1: But after that, Dina wasn't in his ha- ha- home. and uh, Well,
0: I, uh, well, we'll, uh, we'll we'll talk about it. Um Dina Dina is kidnapped by Shechem mm-hmm. um, and who seduces her. Right, who seduces her. Um, for this crime, Shimon and Levi kill Shechem and his entire city. They murder them, brutally, to avenge the, the honor of their sister. Their father, Yaakov, is not too pleased. He's not too pleased at all. Um, and that's really basically where we left off in terms of the major points of the narrative. Yaakov returns to the land of Israel. He returns to the land of Israel. He goes back to his, to his ancestral home it right, goes back to this and says, oh, I didn't give you the page number yet. We're on page 199. Does everyone have a chumash? Okay. Okay, so ooh, one very important point. Yaakov gets renamed yes. in last yes. week's yes. parasha. Mm-hmm. Yaakov gets renamed. His new name is a name you might be familiar with.
1: Israel.
0: Yisrael, right? Now we're talking, now, right? Up until now, we were talking about a special family. Now we're talking about a special nation. We're talking about the people of Israel. That's us, right? That's us. So now, right, we're now dealing with Klal Israel. Right?
1: What about Yisroel?
0: Yisroel also married and also
1: had children?
0: Out of the picture for now. He is married and has children, but right now we're focusing on the family of Yaakov. It's a good question. We're going to get back to him when Mashiach... We'll deal with them then. I promise you that. (laughs) Okay? So the right. It's a questionable time. Okay, so the Parsha begins, right? The Parsha begins, right? Look at verse number 2. These are the chronicles of Yaakov, right? Elah told us Yaakov. These are the chronicles of Yaakov. Yosef, at the age of 17 years, was a shepherd with his brothers by the flock, but he was a youth with the sons of Bill and the sons of Zilpah, etc., so we skip over all these people, and we go to Yosef. All of them? Eh, they don't matter very much. Yosef, it's all about Yosef. You can, the chronicles of Yaakov start with Yosef. So you don't need ancient wisdom of the sages to tell you that obviously Yosef's a pretty big deal. Right? Yosef's a pretty big deal. He is the continuation, specifically, of Yaakov. In other words, all these people are important. All these, tri- right, these are ultimately the twelve tribes of Israel. They're all very important, but it's Yosef who is carrying on specifically the way of Yaakov. In other words, Yaakov has produced a whole spectrum of children, all of whom are important for the formation of the nation of Israel, right? But it's Yosef who represents the continuation of Yaakov specifically. Um, uh, Yosef is. We're going to see in the coming, in this parasha, in the coming parasha, Yosef is tied to redemption, and salvation. Uh, we're going to see in many ways. There's a concept called, I'm sure you've heard of the concept of Mashiach, right? Now Mashiach is generally thought of, right? The messianic idea in Judaism is generally thought thought of as being connected to the Davidic line, right? Mashiach ben David, right? He's descended from King David. But according to a lot of many Jewish sources, there's also something called Mashiach ben Yosef. Yeah. Right, there is, a, there is a a redemptive period or a or a salvation a, a period of of national uh, redemption or salvation which happens in connection to a Mashiach who descends from the tribe of Yosef as well. Yosef is a very important transformative, uh, almost messia- a, a proto messianic figure in our history, and we're going to see just in what way he is proto messianic.
1: Well, can you explain what is the difference between ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David?
0: We're going to try to get into who Yosef is. Yes. And hopefully by the end of the class we'll have a sense of the answer to your question. It's, a, this is, it's a complicated. <laughs> thing. Okay? Now, here's the deal with Yosef. Let's read the Pasuk. Let's look back at number two. These are the Chronicles of Yaakov. Yosef, at the age of 17 years, was a shepherd with his brothers by the flock. But he was a youth with the sons of Bill and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. It sounds like they had a little, some kind of childish thing going on. And Joseph would bring evil reports about them to their father. That's a very strange thing to say. He would bring <clears throat> evil reports about them. He I mean, was a snitch. Right? Now, now, Yisrael, that's, that's Yaakov loved Joseph more than all his sons since he was a child of his old age, right? He's from the youngest children, so he had a closer relationship to him. And he made him a fine woolen tunic, right? Kisones passim. Anyone ever heard of a musical called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, right? So it. it is not the first work of literature to reference that particular individual. His brothers saw that it was he whom their father loved most of all his brothers, so they hated him. Right, that's a given. That's always going to happen. And they could not speak to him peaceably. Right. So things. Right. Trouble in paradise. Now, if it sounds familiar in terms of the the parallels to Yaakov, being the hated brother. Right. Being, and the sages point out, Yosef is the hated brother. Right. It, as it were. As it were. Obviously, there's a difference between these people who are the ancestors of the Jewish people and Esau, but. They, all the siblings, are filling the role of Esau. And Yosef is filling the role of Yaakov. Right? The irony is that in this scenario, right, if you recall, Yitzchak loved Asaph. But Yaakov loves Yosef. Right? So we see some of the same themes, but things are a little switched around. So let's try to break apart the, the, the verses we just read. Right? We said V'hu right? Vihunar, Hunar, but he was a youth. That was one of the first things we read, but he was youth. So what does that mean? What does that mean? So, Svarno says that, the, the, if you remember, we quoted Vavadio Svarno, is an important Italian commentator, and what he describes to us about Yosef was that he was, um, the way Rabbi Grossman actually put it to me, was he had an, what we call an He had He had, he was guileless. It did not, he didn't know that one ought not to say or do things which might arouse envy or resentment. He didn't understand the way of the world. He didn't understand the way of the world, and, and he was kind of um, ingenuous, right? he had like a certain innocence to him, a certain what we would call clueless, naivete. And whenever we see a theme, a character like that in literature, right, he's considered to be evocative of um, what they call the divine child, or the eternal child, right? That's kind of the, the concept we've talked about in the past of, you know, the, the, the child within us, the, the inquiring, the, the, the constantly changing, the and the, the, it is the child that is willing to always challenge new horizons, right? Adults tend to be set in their ways, and children are always trying new things. Um, so that has a positive side and a negative side, right? Yosef, on the one hand, is the divine child, right? He is... He, he brings his, it's mentioned that he brings evil reports about his brothers to, his, to their father. What does he do? In other words, he snitches. He sees things that aren't right, and he says, Hey, you know, they did X, Y, or Z. They did something wrong, right? Now, that's not necessarily a very good idea. It's not a great way to be. There's something that is naive and childlike about thinking that the way to solve that sort of problem is to go and tell tales, is to go and tell his father. He has a certain again, a naivete and an innocence to him, which is both his strength and his weakness. Right, the they, Another way they refer to uh, they refute they're, 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 so that's kind of the, the eternal child angle, and they talk about, you know, there's, there's a, a psychological concept of an adult who doesn't break out of that childlike nature, that childlike uh, aspect, which is not good generally for his social relationships, for his emotional development, and you know I like a good character arc, and I'm I I'm going to try to find one here. What we're going to study in this parsha is the development of Yosef from that kind of eternal child, from that that person who's kind of locked in childhood and childlike ways, to an adult, to a real man, right? To a real man. So, as a divine child, right? As that's the positive side, Yosef presents us with the. Possibility for change and for self-improvement, right? And as the eternal child, right? As the internal child, he is a nar, right? The word nar means a young man, but it also, and in Yiddish, it actually is the sole meaning of the word nar. means a fool. It means someone who's lighthearted, right? In Yiddish, you say to upnarin. You want to fool somebody, you're gonna upnar him. You're going to fool him, right? And that concept, the way that Chazal, the way the sages describe it, how they say that Yosef was very concerned with his looks. He would do his hair just so. He would, he would walk very consciously. In other words, he kind of overthought about the way he walked. And he would present himself in such a fashion as to... He was, he was obsessed, in a way, with, kind of, with aesthetics, with externals, which, with things that don't really matter. All that much, right? The picture we're presented is somebody who is shallow, somebody who is who does not possess a rich inner development. So another and, and a major theme that we find with this sort of character in literature um, is imprisonment, imprisonment and redemption. Right? Are you guys the Star Wars generation or the Harry Potter generation, mm. or the none of the above generation? We're the... probably Star Wars. Star Wars, okay. But I don't know. Luke Skywalker gets... Okay, Han Solo and Luke Skywalker, okay? It depends which Star Wars. Um, the first three. Okay. Alright, so Han Solo gets frozen in carbonite, right? Han Solo becomes a new... Han Solo is an eternal child, he is a man-child, right? And when he gets unfrozen from the carbonite, he's a new man. He cares about the rebellion. It matters to him. He does the right thing. That's the type of character development I'm talking about. And the reason that that speaks to us, right? this is Pinocchio in the belly of the whale. Who Then he he comes out. This is a major theme in world literature. The boy who becomes a man after being imprisoned, after being put in a hole in the ground, after being locked up somewhere. This is a really big theme that everyone knows and identifies with. Um, So pick your favorite work of literature. It's in there somewhere. Luke in the cave in the beginning of the first movie with the tauntauns in the snow over there. Anyway, okay, without getting too lost in the sauce over here, so that's the theme we're going to be looking for in Yosef, imprisonment, redemption, maturity. Okay, so so far, so good. So far, he's just kind of this little child who gets in the way and annoys everyone. Now, the Kliakar, Kliyakar notes, and we've quoted Kliakar before, Kliakar is the Great mystic Rabbi Shlomo Ephraim Lunchitz um, who was the rabbi in Prague in the very end of the sixteenth and early seventeenth century, and he point he claims he says that that in front of Yaakov, right? We said we said he was a child of his old age, but the Hebrew phrase is ki ven hula. Ki ven literally means he was a child of his old age, but another interpretation of the word zaken, which is always present in all throughout liter- Hebrew literature, is that he was ben zikunim, that he was wise and learned. In front of his father, he acted mature. He acted wise and learned. He concealed his true nature, which was a nar, which was childlike from his father. Had his father known how childish he was, he might have been a little sterner with him. He might not have been so kindly and loving to him. And what's interesting is that the Kliakar says this might be a point also, it's also a point in Yosef's favor because he knew how to act. Under which situation? Which okay, that's an interesting. Those when he was with his brothers, he acted like a child. But when he was with his father, I mean, we're not gonna. That's an interesting point. Definitely an interesting point. By the way, another important hated brother in the Torah is King David himself, David Right when the prophet Shmuel comes to he's, he receives a prophecy that he's supposed to anoint the new king. Because the first king Shaul has been was no good; he didn't uh, fulfill the will of Hashem. So he's supposed to go and find somebody up in Beis Lafem. and he goes, and he finds the family with, that the prophecy tells him to go to, and they all tell him, "Oh, maybe it's this brother, maybe it's that brother, but it's definitely not that brother, David." Oof, gosh, not him! Everyone, knowing what a what a dummy! No one likes him, right? And it turns out that David, of course, King David is King David. He is the first second technically, but the great, the the head of the Davidic line, the most important, one of the most important figures in Jewish history, so the idea of um, of the elect, of Hashem's elect, of the most important figure being simultaneously the most hated figure, is a very central one in our literature. Okay. Um, Cool. Very good. Another important point the Kliyakr says, is that Yosef was, and he cites the Targum Onkelos, which you actually have here, but not in translation. But if you can read it a little bit, the Targum Onkelos in Pasuk Gimel, in the third pasuk says that, yos yosef, mikol benoy, bar hule. He translates the word Zuccane also as, bar what, is, what is the uh, pasuk? Uh, pasuk Gimel, on the inside column, you see Targum Onkelos, uh, right? So he says, right. Says He was a wise son. He was a wise son. Which the Klecker says that Yaakov gave over his primary teaching in terms of his Torah, in terms of his thought, he gave over his teaching primarily to Yosef. Right, so Yosef is now, he's a Nahr, he's a child. Right? But he is a favorite. He is his father's most beloved child, right? Not unlike Esav before him, right, who is childlike in his insistence on instant gratification and successfully conceals that from his father. Now, obviously, it's more watered down because Asaph's kind of like evil. right? Aesop also kind of knew how to behave in front of different people, right? Asaph seems to have known, right, exactly. In other words, he had different faces for different situations. Yosef seems like an improved Asaph, right? He's kind of like Asaph 2.0. You know, he's not, we don't see that he's evil. We just see that he's, in other words, he's childish. And that's kind of like a, if you think of what of might have been like, perhaps, as a teenager, it might have been like Yosef. It might have been like Yosef, you know? Because people aren't, you could argue maybe Esav was, was born evil, right? We talked about that. But someone like Esav might be like Yosef as, as a teenager. And it's all going to depend, are they going to become a real man? Are they going to develop in the right way? Or are they going to keep on just running after whatever they want and whatever they want? To? And that, that is how you develop. Uh, you know, somebody that develops on a negative char- path of character or a positive path of character. Anyway, okay. We said um, back in the end of verse number three, right? Vasalokisonis pasem, and he made him a fine woolen tunic, and right? his father gave him a special garment.
1: Cannot pass in, uh, so mean, uh, the strips. Why they, they um,
0: There's a, a great deal of debate among the commentators as to how to translate the word passim.
1: Because after that they, uh, he recognized this special uh, clause.
0: He? What was the question? So why... Uh,
1: uh, he, uh, uh brother uh, uh, brought uh, uh, these uh, uh, clothes, uh, and he recognized on uh, this clothes because. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll
0: get there. We're not. We're not there yet. So not,
1: not wooden. Uh, not about
0: wooden. Well well, well, we'll see. But they were. They were. The, according, the simple translation is definitely that they were of a just of a particularly fine material, and which set definitely definitely set them apart. Nobody else had that this type of tunic. It was his special cloth. His father not only made him the favorite, but he put him in clothes that made it evident that he was the favorite, right? And uh, it's a sign of importance, right? Usually, the person who has a special uniform, right? It's a it's an indicator that uh, that he's that he's that he's up top, that he's in charge. The Kliyakar says that this was a sign that he was going to get the bichora. He was going to be considered the firstborn. Anyone see what the problem with that is?
1: Number eleven people ahead of him.
0: Twelve. That's a problem. But you may notice something else. In this count, he's number one. Now, given that these two mothers are sisters, and and if we would have learned the parsha the whole parsha two weeks ago, we would know that Rachel was Yaakov's favorite we can understand how much tension it creates when Yosef is declared the firstborn. Because Reuven ought to be the firstborn, really. Reuven ought to be the firstborn, really. He's not anymore. He's not anymore. Why? He made a mistake a couple of ago. He decided to get involved in which wife his father was going to sleep with that particular night, so... He demonstrated that he was not worthy, right? Of course, he's still a son, and he's still an important part of our story, but he's not worthy of that perfection of being the firstborn. So he's already in trouble, and we're going to delve a little bit, of, hopefully, as time, we'll delve a little bit as to what exactly it is about his character that makes him not worthy of being the firstborn. Shimon and Levi are already in trouble for killing out the people of Shechem, right? Shechem... Incident. Right? They're in trouble for the Shechem incident. Okay, so it can't be them. Who it ought to be is Yehuda. By the way, who's from the tribe of Yehuda? King David. And the Mashiach, our redemption, which we are still awaiting, is going to come from the tribe of Yehuda. So I wouldn't be so fast to say that Yehuda is not, in some sense, still the firstborn. As I say just talk about how really the Bechorah, the, the, the birthright, was kind of divided the different aspects. But Yosef gets pumped up to number one. His father makes it pretty clear. This is the successor. This is the person who's going to take over my job. Good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to divert, divert too much. Sure. Was uh, uh, the rabbi uh, from Yehuda tribe? The Obama tribe? Yes. Um, I believe that his family did have a okay. tradition tracing their lineage back to King David, which would mean that indeed they were from the tribe of Judah. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, let's move on to the next stage. Okay? Everyone is really mad at Yosef. He looks really bad right now. Number five. On page 201. Yosef dreamt a dream which he told to his brothers, and they hated him even more. Okay, I'm going to actually read through this whole thing. Let's read through it together till verse number 11. He said to him, hear if you please this dream which I dreamt. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the middle of the field. When, behold, my right sheaves of grain, big uh, bundles of grain, my sheaf arose and also remained standing. Right? As it was as if the grain just stood up. Then, behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Pretty blunt. His brother said to him, would you then reign over us? Right? Would you then dominate us? They're not too happy. And they hated him even more because of his dreams and because of his talk. Now he dreams, the, he, right, he dreamt another dream and related it to his brothers. And he said, look, I dreamt another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars are bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. His father scolded him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamt? Are we to come, I and your mother and your brothers, to bow down to you to the ground? So his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Okay? The symbolism is pretty blatant, right? Um, there's, there's a lot to be said about this, but obviously it's pretty clear what he was aiming for here. And it's pretty clear what his dreams were indicating. Right. By the way, remember anyone else who has important dreams that tell him about the future? Yaakov. Right. Last time we were here, we talked about Yaakov's dreams, and the importance of them, the significance of them. So dreams that we're told about, especially dreams the Torah talks about, are significant. They matter. Right. But for some reason, everyone's mad at Yosef. So the Seforno points out. Right. Rabbi Seforno he says, one example of ya- of Yosef's naive and childish nature is that he thinks it's a good idea in this mess. Right of him being in this really awkward position right that he thinks it's a good idea to march in one day at breakfast and tell his family these dreams. That's naivete. He thinks that as long as I tell them, the way Rabbi Grossman was, wanted to explain it was as long as I tell them this is the prophetic dream that God sent me, they'll know it's the right thing. And if they know it's the right thing, they won't be upset. And of course, that's not how the real world works. It's not how the real world works. But that is the nar in him. That's the child. That's the naive that's his naïveté speaking, right? So the brothers are furious. They react angrily. Right? They say, Ham tim banu. Will you, Are you going to be the king? Really? You're the king now? Right. Kliakar notes, if you look back at the verse, verse number five, right? He says, Joseph dreamt the dream which he told to his brothers and they hated him even more. Kliakar suggests that as soon as he started talking, before he even relayed the dream, they hated him because he said, "Right, how does he open?" He says, "Here, if you please." Right, he says, Shimuna, no, please listen to me." And they said, "What? We have to listen. We have to listen to you now." It was as soon as he was making demands on their spiritual world, you know, he was claiming, "I have a sense of how our spiritual uh, lives should be playing out." That already was a, was an offense. That already was, and again, this even this further contributes to the sense of his naivete. He didn't understand how it is that you can how it is that you have to approach a situation as delicate as this one. Right, so what's a dream? Americans are brought up when you hear the word the phrase I have a dream, you think of I have a dream. You think of Martin Luther King. I have a dream. And I have a dream is what you say when things are one way. And you want them to be a different way. Right? And I have a dream. My dream is that someday, someday things will be different. Right? My four little children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's a beautiful dream. That's a beautiful dream. Everyone should have dreams like that. Right? So Yosef has a dream. And in his dream, he's on top. Right? And he innocently believes that this is something everyone needs to know right now. And all this mess, they still need to know this because this is what God's telling him that this is the way it's going to be. And his brothers, they want no part of his vision, right? Again, it's a vision. This is how he sees things playing out, and he believes that he, Yosef, what he has to contribute. And this is very common among young and talented and young talented people full of potential, is that they have a dream, which is a young person's dream, right? They haven't, uh, they're not old enough yet to really have a vision that matters, that's important, right? But they think they have a sense of what matters. And they want everyone else to do what they think matters, but the people around them, <laughs> right, slow down, right? This is the nature of of, uh, of you know, the, the natural reaction of the establishment is to be conservative, right? Is to, small c, right? Is to, is to resist change. Is to resist change. And Yosef, as the Child, right? As the eternal child is saying, "Hey, something should be different, they're, right?" There, and, and perhaps he was better than his brothers, right? This was he was the son who his father his father pour, poured all his effort into him. He taught him his wisdom, and his brothers were out doing things. were not told exactly what they were doing. This, say, just talk about what it might have been, but his brothers he was bringing bad reports about his brothers. They were being a little, right? They were doing they they weren't doing everything right necessarily, and he seems to have been a pretty good guy if naive, if childish. And maybe he did belong on top, and maybe he should have had the birthright. But that doesn't mean he should have talked about it, and it doesn't mean that was the right way to present. So his brothers weren't ready to hear it. They didn't want to hear it. So what, ya- what does Yaakov do? And I think it's very telling. He scolds him, right? Verse number 10, His father scolded him. His father didn't disagree with him. He's, right, he tells him, the this, sages this talk about why what he told him isn't necessarily... Uh, per se, such a, uh, you know, a a, a disagreement or a contradiction. But what he primarily is doing is he's scolding him. And he's saying, stop that. Remember, he said, there's something I didn't realize about you, right? He, in front of his father, he always acted in a very proper way. He always acted in a very, you know, in a very mature way. But then now his father saw him blurt out his dream in front of his family, and he said, huh, okay, this kid has a little growing up to do. So he scolds him, right? Because it's the first time, perhaps, that he's seeing this behavior. All right. Very well. Let's turn the page. So the next stage that happens, the next stage that happens is a very famous part of the Torah, and it is known as the sale of Joseph, the sale of Yosef, right? Here's the deal. Yosef's brothers want to kill him. Right? Remind you of anyone? They want to kill their brother. It's like Asaph. So his father, probably not knowing this one, would imagine, right? His father goes ahead and says, How about you go? Right? He says to Yosef one day, He says, How about you go and, you know, just check in on your brothers, see how they're doing, make sure everything's good. You know, they're out uh, with the flock check in, send them a message for me, tell them I say hi, right? So he says, okay. So let's pick it up from 17 on 203. Right halfway through. So Joseph went after his brothers. Right, Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. He, found, he finds them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, verse number 18, and when he had not yet approached them, they conspired against him to kill him because they have had enough. Of this person and his pretensions, right? And they said to one another, look, that dreamer is coming, right? What what is it that they want to kill? They want to kill his dream. They don't want to hear any more about his dream. Enough with his dream. They don't want to hear any more about his way, and they don't want to hear any more about his vision, right? It's called the Balachalomos. They're killing him because of his dreams. Killing him because of his dreams. So now, verse number 20, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits and we will say a wild beast devoured him. We'll say he got eaten alive by some wild animal. Then we shall see what will become of his dream. Right? We can put a stop to these ideas now. Ruvain hears. Verse number 21. Ruvain heard and he rescued him from their hand. He said, we will not strike him mortally. Right? And Reuven said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, intending to rescue him from their hand, to return him to his father. So, a teacher of mine um, once pointed out, he said that if you look at Reuven's statement, and it's particularly evident in Hebrew, but if you look at Reuven's statement, you realize right away you realize right away why he's not the firstborn. Ruven says to them, Al tish Right Again, he's technically, he is the first in the birth order. Right, He's the firstborn. But he doesn't hold the birth, right? Why is that? Al tish He gives them an order. Don't shed any blood, right? Throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him. So the sages so explain that what he was trying to say was, we're not going to kill him directly. Right? Don't, don't go and... Don't murder him, don't kill him directly, we'll just leave him, throw him into a pit in the desert, should be fine, right? Of course he's going to die, of course he's going to die, right? But, but we won't be responsible for his death. Now, he, what he's thinking is good, he's thinking, I'll come back later, I'll pull him out, I'll bring him home. This is, this is all a terrible idea, this is a terrible mistake, right? But the problem with the way he expresses himself is, is he gives a bunch of orders. You know you're wrong, right? You're wrong for want- wanting to kill him. Why well, not kind of nefesh? This is not the right thing. Here, you should do a whole bunch of stuff. Don't kill anyone. Throw him in a pit, and 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 uh, don't, don't. You you wouldn't want to have any any blood on your hands, right? So, cool.
1: So they wanted uh, to kill him on because of his dream.
0: Yes. It
1: was not something uh, additional. Thank you. Was sir. A problem.
0: Well, the... Um, uh, they wanted to kill him because of the vision of his dream, right? Because of what the dream represented. Because of what the dream was telling them. The dream was a tremendous threat to them. What were you saying, him? I, I think it, to me it was like, like some of all things. Just he was just really annoying. <laughs> yes, no, yes, thing. but we have to identify why. And his father gave him the coat. And his father gave him the coat. But that's all part of the message of the dream, that he is better. That he is better. That was what they didn't want to hear. That was what they didn't want to hear. So, the way that Reuven expresses himself, while his brothers were going to see, while they listened to him, demonstrates why he's not the firstborn. Because he, being the firstborn, being the leader of the family, being a leader of anything, means that you identify wholly with the group, wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, with the group. You represent every part of the group, right? The Zohar, which is, of course, the great Kabbalistic uh, text of Judaism, says that the, the nature of a king, of a melech, is less klum. that means in Aramaic, there is nothing to him. He has no self. Right? That's a king. A king has no self. That's why a king speaks in the royal we, right? because he represents the whole country. And that's obviously ideally, right? As soon as you have a bad king, that whole concept goes out the window. But a good king represents everyone. Somebody who gives a bunch of orders. You, you wouldn't want to do any of that. You should, right? In other words, there's no us. You wouldn't want to kill him. You should put him in a pit. You should. That's not a leader. That's a pers- That's the strongest person in the room, maybe. Might be the strongest personality. Might be the, the, the biggest guy. But that's not a leader. Let's compare. Okay, so this is basically what happens. He shows up, they decide not to kill him, they don't kill him at the moment. They grab him, they they grab him, they remove. Right? And so it was when Joseph came to his brothers, verse 23. They stripped Joseph of his tunic. So they translate the fine woolen tunic that was on him. But the Kleoker says, the Kleoker says. I the Kliyakr says, and this is important, I'm sorry, the Sforno says, um, The Hebrew says, Two things. They removed both his fine tunic, right, which represented what he was special, and then they represented, they removed his kisones, his regular shirt, his regular clothing. clothes? What are clothes? Clothes are the way we present ourselves to the world around us. Clothes are the way clothes are our outside, right? In, in literature, right? The Emperor's new clothes. What's that all about? That's, a, that's about when you're not allowed to point out something that's false about the way that someone presents himself. Right? So that's that's what that stands for in terms of the symbolism. So they both removed what was special about him. And they remove what was individual about him. They, they, they tried to remove, they, what they wanted to do was remove his very personhood, right? They, they wanted to get rid of this member. They didn't want to just say, you're not allowed to be number one anymore. They wanted to erase him completely. So they couldn't kill him. But they were going to take away his identity. They were going to let him die, right? right? They took him, they cast him into the pet, the pit. The pit was empty, no water was in it. They sat to eat food. They raised their eyes and they saw. Behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead, their camels bearing spices, balsam, and lotus on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, Now here comes Yehuda. You want to see a real leader? Here comes Yehuda. What gain will there be if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, but let our hand not be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Yehuda appeals to their emotions. He appeals to their human side. Right? In other words, he's not aloof. He's there with them. And he says, and he says this is a shared issue we have. We all have this problem. We all, right? He's, he's in on it. He's not giving orders. We have this brother. We don't like him very much. What's the right thing for us to do? You know what? We shouldn't let him die. Rather, let's sell him down the river. Let's sell him as a slave. Now, let's be clear. Selling your brother as a slave is bad. Don't do that. What is the uh, better? What is? What is the better? To live uh, there or to... sell? There is no question! That's exactly what I wanted to get to. Thank you for saying that. There's no question, however, that if your choice is, let him die, or sell him as a slave, it's better that he be sold as a slave. So Yehuda takes leadership, and that's a real leader, and Yehuda is a real leader. Yehuda is a real leader. Yosef represents perhaps a higher ideal, if is an ideal, perhaps, but in terms of the real, in terms of dealing with the problems on the ground, in terms of dealing with the problems on the ground, Yehuda is a true leader, and Yehuda is successful. And in fact, that's what the brothers do; they sell him as a slave, and he is sent down to Egypt. I want to go a few minute, a few minutes over because I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to wrap so, this up. Yehuda saved him. Yehuda says, absolutely. Let's move on to page two hundred and thirteen. We're going to look at the very bottom of the page, chapter thirty-nine. Okay, we are going to very briefly show how Yosef becomes a man. Right, and Yosef had been brought down to Egypt. Potiphar, a courtier of Paro, the chamberlain of the butchers, the chamberlain of the butchers, a prominent Egyptian, purchased him from the Ishmaelites. Right, he's bought by a prominent man who had brought him down there. Hashem was with Yosef, page 215. Hashem was with Yosef, and he became a successful man, right? Vayihih ish matzliach. What we're about to hear is the story of how Yosef becomes a man. And he remained in the house of his Egyptian master. His master perceived that Hashem was with him, and whatever he did, Hashem made succeed in his hand. Yosef found favor in his eyes, and he attended him, right? He was his main guy, he was his major domo. He appointed him over his household, and whatever he had, he placed in his custody. So Yosef is right, Yosef is stepping up. Yosef is no longer the kid brother. Yosef is responsible for the whole program in Potiphar's house. Now, let's move on, move down to verse number seven. After these things, his master's wife cast her eyes upon Yosef, and she said, Lie with me, Sheikh me The sages talk about. The wife of Potiphar, and according to tradition, we're talking about a woman who is incredibly beautiful. And we're talking about a young man, a teenager, who's hundreds, if not thousands of miles from his home. Hundreds. He's very, very far from his home. Nobody knows him here. Nothing matters. His master's not around. It's an empty house. And this woman says to him, come be with me. She tries to seduce him. Right? Tries to seduce What does he say? Verse number eight. But he adamantly refused. And the Hebrew, the word is, vayimoein. So I don't know if you've been called up to the Torah recently, but you'll be aware that the words that the Torah is read with cantillation marks. Right? There's a little bit of a tune. The cantillation mark that appears over the word vayim and he refused, is one, I think there are three or perhaps four examples of it in the entire Torah, and it's called a shal and it is read as which is supposed to indicate that he did it again and again and again. Right, this woman thrust herself upon him again and again and again. And each time, he stood firm. He stands firm. Right, He puts his foot down. Verse number 10. And so it was just as she coaxed Yosef day after day, so he would not listen to her to lie beside her, to be with her. Then there was an opportune day when he entered the house to do his work. No man of the household staff being there in the house, that she caught hold of him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he threw the one outside. That moment when someone, when Yosef faces down temptation, he faces down instant gratification and rejects it in favor of the higher values with which he was raised is the moment when Yosef becomes a man. Okay?